0: Hello, I'm Vivian Parry, Head of Public Engagement at Genomics England. It's my pleasure today to be guest hosting today's episode of The G Word. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone, and that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses. Hope, fear, anger. There's a lot of information out there but a lot of myths too. And it's not all accessible to non-experts. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. Now, Genomics England is guardian of the National Genomic Research Library, which contains genome sequences and health data generously donated by participants with rare disease and cancer. It's acknowledged as one of the globe's most important resources for medical research. A Particular feature is that it contains over 1500 sarcoma sequences, the largest number in any data set in the world. Sarcomas are rare and very variable cancers, which are difficult to diagnose and difficult to treat. Their prognosis has hardly changed over the last 40 years. To help explore what whole genome sequencing means for sarcoma patients, we're bringing you two podcasts in association with Sarcoma UK, one with sarcoma research scientist, Professor Adrienne Flanagan. But in this pod, I'll be talking to BBC journalist Zoe Conway. Her husband, Chris Martin, died of sarcoma in 2015. At the time of his death, he was Principal Private Secretary to then Prime Minister David Cameron. You may remember that it was David Cameron that set up Genomics England and initiated the 100,000 Genomes Project. Chris Martin donated his sarcoma sequence to the project. And in his memory, Zoe has helped raise over 200,000 pounds for sarcoma research. Zoe, welcome to the pod. Thank you. Very, very happy to be here. Zoe, give us a feel first. What was Chris like? Tell us the kind of person he was.
1: One of my favourite things to say about Chris is to explain what kind of man he was, is to think about what he did when he was at university. He joined the Opera Society at Bristol University, not to be on stage, not to sing, but to be the lighting director. And I found a file of facts of his that he'd had at um, university, remember those people had file access back in the 1990s, these little paper diaries. And he'd drawn beautifully where all the lights would go on the stage. It was very intricate. And the point about Chris was that he wanted everybody else to shine. He wanted everybody else to look good. And he really carried that through his career. I remember soon after he died, the cabinet secretary, uh, Lord Hayward, Jeremy Hayward, who sadly died of cancer, nearly three years after Chris, he called me into his office. And I remember thinking, what on earth are you doing calling me into your office? You're the cabinet secretary, you're running Whitehall, you're a busy man, why have you called me in for a cup of tea? But he was desperate to talk about Chris. He loved him. And one of the things he said to me that made Chris stand out as a civil servant, because there's lots of very, very clever civil servants, very clever, was how he nurtured other people. So I don't entirely understand the process, but he might get submissions from sort of more junior civil servant memos that would sort of form part of the advice that would go into a minister. And if there was a particularly good submission, Chris would make sure that that civil servant's name stayed on it. And Jeremy Hayward said to me, that was unusual, that Chris would make sure that people got credit. And so it was this sense that he was constantly wanting to nurture people and bring people on. And I think that's partly why David Cameron, who delivered this incredible tribute to him at the Dispatch Box at the beginning of PMQs that day on the 25th of November 2015, some two and a half hours after Chris died, full of emotion. He talked about how Chris had been somewhere between a father and a brother to people in Downing Street. He wasn't just principal private secretary. He was also also director general of number 10. So he was kind of the sort of administrative boss of number 10. And I think that's why his death was such a loss, because he wasn't just, as I say, a clever man who, you know, rose to the top. And I don't doubt that he was at times a bit ruthless, but he was Decent and full of integrity, and was prepared to speak truth to power. And I think people just felt that he was a sort of straight dealer and honest. And that's always how I felt about him in my relationship. And I I remember, you know, we we were sort of having to say goodbye to him. He had an operation a few weeks before he died, and we didn't know whether he was going to make it through the operation. So we all had to say goodbye. And I remember sitting there and saying to him, you know, you, you mustn't die because you make me better. And I think that was has been something that I really miss is that I just sort of felt like I had somebody who made me better as a person.
0: There are those rare people in lives that make us better and yeah. they really they really shine. Yeah. When was it that his, uh, his cancer was diagnosed?
1: Well, this is the extraordinary thing. So he found a lump under his right arm, October 2013. And he almost immediately went to the doctor. It was quite a big lump, causing him some discomfort. And he just knew something wasn't right. He 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 didn't sort of ignore it. He went to the doctor very quickly. And it took four months for them to diagnose that it was sarcoma. So they went through the whole sort of range of possibilities. At one point they said it's an unknown primary, which means that this is the secondary tumour and we don't know where the first one is. And you might have literally weeks or days. I mean, it was catastrophic. Anyway, they sort of worked through it. And finally it was diagnosed as sarcoma. So it's really unfortunate that four months were wasted. But he then went through chemotherapy i don't get the sense anyone was particularly confident that it was going to work he had radiotherapy a few months later the cancer came back and so from the lump being discovered october 2013 november 2015 he died
0: it was very quick wasn't it yeah Uh, that's the problem with sarcomas that they're so difficult to diagnose sometimes it does take a long time because there are all these very rare subtypes with all sorts of different prognoses and it's really hard
1: exactly and that was part of the problem was chris had a subtype so sarcoma is already rare rare, although i think there's a kind of danger in constantly going on about how rare sarcoma is when you think well that's not a good enough excuse to not come up with you know the solutions to all of this but it was rare and then to make it even more complicated, he had a subtype that was even rarer. Um and it was a it was a kind of what you would call soft tissue sarcoma. So it, it struck first under his arm. He had another one in his abdomen at one point. At one point it was uh on his cheek actually. That was quite near the end. And it sort of it almost sort of feels like you've kind of gone back in time to almost the kind of Victorian era of medicine where In some situations, it's not true of all sarcoma, but in some situations, they're just having to cut it out, just cut it out or take a leg off, take an arm off, because the the options in some cases, not all, are so limited.
0: Had the Prime Minister already started the 100,000 genomes at that point?
1: it was already underway and i don't think we can say that chris was directly involved in either the introduction or implementation of the policy but he was certainly very aware of it once he was diagnosed and once he started talking to the brilliant professor adrian flanagan at sarcoma uk um, who's really at the forefront of this of collecting these genomes and he gave a sample quite close to the end and he so he was very, very aware and uh you know saw how incredibly important the work was, and was incredibly ambitious for her at uh, work and uh, and ambitious for the u k that that really this was kind of you know we had to kind of really push at these boundaries.
0: So in some ways, he was almost thinking about sarcoma in the way that he would think about things that came through number 10 as something that needed to be sorted out.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that's what's so utterly infuriating for him was that he was a very kind of practical man who always approached things, you know, thinking about how he was going to fix things. And I remember, actually, when we were at UCH... At University College Hospital, there were these doctors standing in a sort of moon shape round the bottom of the bed, and Chris was sat cross legged, interrogating them about his dream. <laughs> Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? Taking notes like he was in a meeting in David Cameron's office, and they were discussing, you know, strategy. He he, he would be taking notes. Um, and I, I'll i be honest, I'd be sat sometimes at the edge of the room just thinking, why is he doing this? And I think it's because he needed to feel a certain amount of control, but also that he was kind of holding everybody to account and making sure that everybody was doing as much as they possibly could. And in fact, he did give a sample Um, of his genome but also it wasn't just part it wasn't just for the greater good it was also because we did actually end up going and seeing you know somebody to see if there might be a immunotherapy you know treatment that he might benefit from I mean he was he was not ready to die he was not he didn't want to die you know he and and he wanted to be ambitious just as he was ambitious for all the people around him and for himself he was ambitious And, and he would get infuriated about why did it take four months to diagnose? Why aren't we using cutting edge artificial intelligence to, to in, in diagnostics? You know, there was a kind of it was infuriating to him.
0: And that's actually part of Adrian Flanagan's work is making sure that you use AI to diagnose these very difficult to treat cancers.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that was a real eye opener to me, I'm just, you know, incredibly healthy person and I very rarely end up in hospital for anything, even as a visitor. But, you know, there were elements when you would walk into hospital and you just think there's sort of a kind of absolute brilliance and his sarcoma, um, you know, the consultant was absolutely brilliant. But then you sort of kind of sense that there were, it was quite sort of analog, some of the bits of the NHS. And so it's wonderful if Professor Flanagan is, is you know, really pushing the AI, you know, program ahead.
0: Why did he believe so much in genome sequencing? And why did he become so driven about it?
1: Because I think he thought that there's no other way to address the complete lack of information about this cancer. I mean, you just felt the whole way through his treatment that, it was just a kind of element of stabbing in the dark by, you know, very clever people stabbing in the dark. And so again, if you, if you're, if you're a intelligent sort of methodical, practical person, it's about information gathering, isn't it? You gather the information, you put it all in front of you, and then you decide what's the best sort of plan of attack. And that's ultimately all we're doing, isn't it? Just gathering lots and lots of information through this genetic research, to try and fix it.
0: It's a way to be systematic, I guess.
1: Yeah, systematic.
0: How did did Chris cope with his cancer? Because he kept on working, didn't he?
1: Oh, I mean, astonishing. I think, mentally, he needed to just keep on working. I think he sort of felt like if he had too much time to think, it would have a very sort of negative impact on him mentally. So he had to keep going. But also he absolutely loved his job. Absolutely loved his job. He was at the absolute kind of, he. I can't say he was at the pinnacle of, pinnacle of his career because everyone was predicting he would just keep going, that you know he would just become more and more senior within the civil service. But it, it, it was a sort of dream come true for him that job and so part of the reason why i kept working was not necessarily just completely because he was you know a hard grafter but also he just loved it he absolutely loved it so he just kept on working and so his routine would be that he might have the yeah he would have the chemotherapy on a friday um rest through the weekend and then be back at work on a monday He had a bed, sort of camp bed, that he would use to sleep on in Number 10 if he felt a bit tired. But I I know that from speaking to Nick Robinson, the journalist Nick Robinson, who also carried on working, that I think the two of them have have talked about it, that it was a way of coping, really. But he also kept running. He just kept running the whole way through as well. Astonishingly, Mm -hmm. he ran the London Yeah, but not not astonishingly if you knew him. But yeah, six months before he died, he ran the, ran the marathon in like really good time. And I'm going to confess, I now can't remember how quickly he did it. I have to go and look it up. But he, yeah, I remember him texting me from the start line, sort of saying all of human life is here because he was sort of slightly bemused that there were people having their final cigarettes before those set off. Um, no, he ran, he ran the marathon and was back at work, I think the next day. But I think that's partly because he knew the prognosis wasn't good and he was just wringing every single last drop out of his life. Yeah, he raised £10,000, I think, from that marathon.
0: Which is amazing. Was he trying at the time to raise awareness of cancer? And we've seen recently with Balbabe, who's just died.
1: No, I mean, I think there was an obvious opportunity there for him to kind of put himself in the spotlight if you like but going back to the analogy of him being the lighting director he wasn't really like that I think he was just very very ambitious for Salken UK but he wasn't the sort of person that would have wanted the story to have been about him I also think he I think he had a very very strong sense that as a civil servant it's not about you you're not the elected politician you're in the back room it's not about you I mean, you know, he planned a glorious memorial service in Westminster. This was a man who um, knew that there were going to be lots of uh, tributes and he was very happy about that. And that was all rather wonderful once he died. But he wasn't the sort of person who would have, you know, done a whole thing about him. I don't think he would have felt it was appropriate. I think he thought that wouldn't be right.
0: When he died, after such a period of drive and a time when you know he wouldn't let life go that must have been very very hard and i know it's taken you some years to be able to talk about him like this
1: yeah i mean i i think i mean one of the astonishing things was despite the fact that obviously i knew what he did he was quite modest and quite low key i mean i found him deeply underwhelming the first time i met him He was talking about um, universal credit, the um, welfare benefit. And um, to be honest, I sort of thought it was all a bit dull. And then he sent me these emails about universal credit, which was not clearly the greatest chat up line in the world. And so I arranged for our first date to be just down the road from my office because I thought that after about 45 minutes, I would pretend there was a regular story and run, (laughs) run back to the newsroom. But you no, know, it was just one of the most astonishing things. I remember when we were at home, there was just this sort of queue of people to come see him. So be like, I'd open the door and be like, oh, it's the prime minister. Oh, it's the cabinet secretary. Oh, it's the head of MI5. Just turning up. And I was sort of a bit, you know, in a bit of a state. And so it was kind of incredible. And those first few weeks afterwards, sort of that's what kind of carried me through was this community of people who absolutely adored him, who looked out for me. And I think that's often the case when somebody dies is that for the first few weeks and months, you're sort of carried along by all of that. And then it's sort of a bit like you sort of then approach the waterfall and then you just kind of go. Voom. And then because you suddenly realize they're not. Well, it took about a year, I think he's he's not coming back. And I sort of like to think he's all around me, and he's still here, and you know, yeah. And he, no, he is definitely part of me. He's definitely in here, but it's just—excuse my language—it's just bloody annoying. I mean, if you meet somebody you want to spend the rest of your life with, and I remember asking him near to the end, "Do you think we would we would have been together for a long time?" And he said, "A long, long time." I mean, he was on a bit of morphine at the time, but I think he meant it. And we did get married. Uh, five days before he died, um we'd been talking about getting married at the hospital and one of the sort of doctors, more junior doctors, got wind of this and came into the room and said, I hear that you want to get married and he just said you've got an infection because Chris had a throat infection. And that's basically why he died in the end. It was because of this infection. Um and he said, If I were you, I wouldn't wait. And I literally, I think I bolted out of the the door that afternoon, pegged it to Camden Council, had this slightly comedy routine with this woman at the council who was terribly nice, one of the registrars, but who spent an awfully long time entering things into a computer as I'm sat there going, he's about to die. And at one point she said, have you got a checkbook? And I thought, right, that's it, that's it. We're not going to get married because I haven't got a checkbook. Anyway, we got there and, and, and she said, right. And she, she sort of bit more typing. And then she looked up and very, just without any sort of real sense of occasion, just went, right, well, we'll we can be with you in an hour. Anyway, so I went, right, excellent. So I jumped into the back of a black cab, pootled, uh, and sped back to the hospital, burst into the room and just said, baby, we're getting married in an hour. And then his brother zoomed out and went and got some wedding rings from Argos. And um where would his, you be without Argos and the crisis oh, And, and you know what? Wonderful. And um, they're lovely. And uh, his sister-in-law went and got some champagne, and you know, look, he really wasn't very well, but he was he just about got through it. Um, and then a couple of days later, as you do, the deputy private secretary to the Queen turns up with a medal. Uh, he was made commander of the Royal Victorian Order, which is a very special. Award that can only be given by the Queen, and so that because I think they realised that the time so that was on the Saturday, and then on the Wednesday it was the Wednesday morning, almost bang on nine thirty in the morning on the twenty fifth of November, twenty fifteen, and I'd been warned, you know, his breathing would change, and I remember just not being—I just ridiculously calm, and I think I went off for a shower, and I came back. And his breathing had got even more shallow. And I sort of ended, you know, was sort of furiously calling his family. And I was talking to him about all my favourite memories. And I think at one point slightly telling him off as well. Because I thought, you know, we've been married for five days. We might as well do the whole sort of marriage in the space of about 10 minutes. So So I went through the whole thing, all my emotions, everything. And then he died. And then I was just this incredible, just weird calm where you don't really feel anything because it's not, it's just weird. Somebody's alive and then they're dead. It's just weird, you know. And I went and sat in the corridor and just phoned all his friends to tell them because I didn't want them to find out from the news because it was obviously going to, you know. I mean, I phoned a senior civil servant who loved him. who was in the back of a car being driven somewhere. He told me later he just pulled into a, lay by and and wept. And I phoned up somebody quite senior in Downing Street, I think it was the Deputy Chief of Staff, and said he's died. A note was passed or somebody whispered into the ear of Jeremy Hayward, who was chairing a meeting of all the permanent secretaries, all the heads of departments. And he was told, you know, Chris has died. And, And they weren't long into the meeting, I'm told. And he just said, right, that's it, there's no point he just said that's it and just finished the meeting there and then and i just think what was astonishing about chris was you know look he was he could be a, he could be an operator he didn't get to be the director general number 10 by just being a you know pushover but what's astonishing about him is that he wasn't just respected people really respected him he was he spoke truth to power he stood up to people i remember him coming home one night and saying to me, I had to stand up. To, you know, we had that. How was your day, dear conversation? He said I had to stand up to him. And he meant David Cameron. I never asked him what he was talking about because we didn't get into anything. He wasn't my source. He said I had to stand up to him. And that's kind of who he was. So people respected him. But people loved him. That's what's so astonishing. People who worked with him. Very rarely do you get people you work with who you respect and you love. Quite
0: annoying, not, really. Not a, <laughs> not, a, not astonishing at all, I think. But actually, <laughs> Jeremy Haywood and perhaps it was because of Chris, was also extraordinarily helpful in the history of the Hundred Thousand Genomes Project. I oh, was did he? everything he could to speed it uh, on its way. Oh, excellent! And and then after his death, you started doing some uh, fundraising, and I know one of the particular things was that not only should research continue, but also that there were, there were nurses who were able to ask people for their consent to have their genome sequence included um, in the uh, the National Genomic Research Library. And that yes. actually, has been enormously helpful. I have to tell you now, Zoe, that one of the main reasons why we have so many sarcoma samples, why it's such an important data set for the whole world is because the money that you helped raise made people who perhaps wouldn't have thought about donating their sequence actually do it. She's got a big smile on her face. <laughs> glad to say, and one of the things I, I I think that's really important. You've already raised it when we heard it from Adrian Flanagan, is that because these subtypes are rare so you've got a rare cancer and then you've got a subtype which is even rarer so you need masses of sequences to make sense of it all not just from the UK of course but right across the world so that we bring all these sequences together and that's how we can really get to grips with understanding these very mysterious cancers.
1: Yeah I mean it's it's hugely exciting um, because I think that was one of the frustrating things for Chris was just you want to feel as if people are shooting for the moon for you. And that never really felt like an option. There were just so few options. In fact, he once said to me, I, I feel like I'm being asked to join a queue to die. So I think it's wonderful that people are that all of this is up and running and that people are, are donating their genius, knowing that it probably isn't going to benefit them. But it's part of this hugely exciting moonshot. Hopefully it will keep developing and, and, and become a very you know realistic way for people to, to be treated. There's a lot of catch up to be done, for sure. But it's a world away from the
0: old kind of white men in white coats research. Um, this kind of research, you know, involving data scientists and that kind of thing
1: yeah exactly it's it's not about um you know test tubes and stirring that sort of old-fashioned um approach particularly you know using utilizing uh new technology um and again chris would that's absolutely what he was hoping for and i hope that that's what this money is is going to um you know keep on developing
0: there can't be a day when a thought of him doesn't ambush you suddenly and I don't know whether it helps to think that you're able to perhaps chart a different path for other families affected by sarcoma.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, because, you know, pardon the cliche, but you just don't want anyone else to go through this. And I, I particularly think having spoken to parents of people of children with sarcoma, just how how it can be just utterly desperate. I, I was speaking to the father of a little boy who died from something called Ewing's sarcoma. And he said there was, I think, seven children have been in this bay um, on this ward, all with sarcoma. And he drew me like a little drawing of which one's had died which ones had had limbs amputated and one of the dads had said you know we're pumping them full of this poison with no real sense that it's going to do anything i.e. chemotherapy and so you know it's it's you know we've got to harness this technology we've got to be ambitious we just can't have this stasis in terms of this disease where we just don't move forward and you know this it's not good enough to just keep saying it's rare um you know we've we've got to be ambitious and that's what's really exciting about what's going on um you know gathering these genomes and and making people feel that there's a path that we can we can walk walk down to, to to improve outcomes
0: i suspect chris martin would be very proud of you and also fascinated by what's going on at the moment
1: well i think there are days when he's proud and probably days when he isn't when i'm you know <laughs> when i'm i mean i you know grief takes many different forms and you know there was there was a lot of anger i'm not sure and i'm not very proud of it and i'm not sure he would necessarily be very proud of it either but it's um it's what it is yeah
0: i suspect he might be very proud
1: yes I, th- I think, you know, I-, I hope so. I mean, and, you know, for somebody who didn't hog the limelight, you know, what's been wonderful is the way we've raised money. We've been holding these fundraisers and it's about getting his friends together and all the people he work with. And, you know, you don't have to chivvy any- anybody. Um, people just want to do things. I mean, one of his friends from Downing Street ran a marathon last year. People are doing stuff all the time for him. I mean, I can't claim credit for £200,000. I mean, half the time it's people just saying, right, I'm going to go off and do this, doing the park run, I'm doing a marathon. I'm, you know, we're doing, we're having a bake off, we're doing this, we're doing that. Um, But yes, we have organised these wonderful fundraisers which bring people together and celebrate the very, very best of him.
0: Well, let's close it there, celebrating Chris Martin and uh, Zoe Conway. Thank you so much for being. Part of this uh, podcast, do please have a listen to the interview with Professor Flanagan and do have a look at our website at Genomics England for more information about projects involving sarcoma. Thanks so much for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to The G Word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, or if you have a suggestion for someone you think we should interview, then do write to us at at podcast.genomicsengland.co.uk. And remember, if you've enjoyed listening, then giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series. And I'd so appreciate it if you could go and do that. I've been Vivian Parry, We'll see you on the next episode of The G Word. Goodbye.